We're in Psalm 133 this morning. If we'd all stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to warn you right now. This is one of the weird ones. Okay? All right. And yet, it is God's word and it is given to uh, flourish us. Hear, Hear it now. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. There, For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The grass withers, the flower fades, but even the strange words of the Lord endure forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, thanks for this, uh, this word that is a little strange to our ears. It reminds us, Lord, that though this was written for us, it was not necessarily written to us. And so because of that, um, we join with all of your people throughout all time. Those who completely got this as soon as it was read to them and they heard it, they were like, yes. And we join with those who were like us who read it and go, I'm sure that's good for something, but help us to receive your word. Open our hearts to receive it to know you, to love you more, to be changed by your gospel. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Have a seat. So uh, one of the things about being a, a preacher is that oftentimes you um, come up with, you know, like illustrations, right? And illustrations are often drawn from your own experience. And over the years, especially in the last probably five or six, what I've realized is that I'm getting old, and older, which means that my illustrations only connect with like less than half the people in the room. But in, in light of that and foregoing that danger, I'll do another one. In, uh, in the late 80s, none of you remember this. Some of you do. In the late 80s, there was this commercial put out by Coke. Involved a rather catchy tune that was also miserable. It wasn't like It's a Small World After All miserable, but it was still pretty miserable. And it had... And it's been repeated a few times, tried to redo it. But like I said, it involves this really awful, catchy song and a bunch of different types of people giving one another glass Coke bottles. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I'd like to buy the world a Coke. Keep it company. It's glorious. Then there was that rash of collaborative songs by all the singers who everyone had to have their own little line, no matter how short, you know what it began with? We are the world. Kids, YouTube that one. That's a train wreck. That was terrible. We are the world. We are the children. We are the ones to bring a better day. So let's start living. Terrible. But all of these things in that epic were trying to give voice to this dream. This dream that I I think everyone to some degree shares of everybody coming together. There's something in that that is just an ache for us. And, And I think we especially know this today as we see the world more and more polarized. Like, good grief, can we just get together on something? Does everyone have to be at one another's throats? We ache for this. And that's what this psalm is about. It's about unity. So here's what I want to do this morning. Here's what I want to talk about. Because we're talking about unity. But that's a really misunderstood term. 
So what I want to do is I want to talk about what it is, I want to talk about why we want it, and then I want to talk about how we get it, okay? What it is, what unity is, why we should want it, and how we get it, all right? If you're a note taker, there's an outline in your bulletin. If not, don't worry about it. So at this point, and by, by that I mean we are like one week away from the end of the Psalms of Ascent series. And so by this point, I could probably start some of these things that I'm about to say, and some of you could continue to say them, but I'm going to keep going, all right? So you know that the Psalms of Ascent are a group of psalms in the middle of the Psalter that are there uh, to be the songs that people would sing on their way from Jerusalem on up to, or sorry, their way from their homes to Jerusalem during the feast. They were pilgrim songs, meant to be songs about the journey, not just the journey to Jerusalem, but the journey um, in life with God. And so, um, you know, all of these, as we, as we understand that, and, and as we come to these texts, we need to understand issues of context. And I've said this before, but there's two kinds of context in the Bible. There's one in which you're dealing with what is internal context, the passage itself. Like you, you don't take verses and rip them out and go, this is my little rabbit's foot verse. And it means nothing like what you think it means because it actually is supposed to be in a bunch of verses, right? So that's internal context. And then external context is this thing that we see like in the Psalter. I don't know if you know this, but the Psalms were not written in order, right? Somebody didn't sit down and go, all right, Psalm number, what number am I on again? Ah, 133. It's getting old. This will be a short one. Like that's not the way this worked. Instead, um, a bunch of Psalms had been written over the uh, generations even, some by David, some by... um, Uh, this dude named Asaph, like there were a bunch of different ones written. And then someone came along inspired by the Holy Spirit and collected them and curated them into certain sections, okay? And this, the Psalms of Ascent are that as well. And they are are put together in a certain order uh, in in certain cycles, right? We know this, we've been told this, we're gonna keep saying it. Cycles of three, the first of those talks about the point of distress, a problem that we all experience, The second one deals with God's provision on the way. The last one, arrival. So obviously, if next week is our last week in the Psalms of Ascent, this week we're talking about what we see in this passage is about God's provision along the way. That will become important, okay? All right, so let's let's dig in. Look down at verse number one. First and foremost, how good and pleasant it is, okay? We don't often use the word pleasant anymore. And frankly, like even as we do, good and the idea of something being pleasant doesn't really um, engage with us as much as we could. Another word that you could translate that word that we get that is translated pleasant would be delightful. And I think that's probably a little more key. How good it is. In other words, it is a it is a objectively good thing. Like this is not bad, it's good. Okay, so it's it's right and delightful, meaning it's enjoyable. How good and enjoyable, delightful it is when brothers dwell in unity. So brothers, um, you know, again, the the Old Testament is written in in a rather androcentric culture. But what we're dealing with is kin, family. How good and pleasant, how good and delightful, how right and enjoyable it is when, when kin and then broadened into community are able to be United, when they live in unity. Okay, what is unity? Well, I think all of us know to some degree it's, it's some form of togetherness, 
right? But it's to be differentiated from something. It's different than uniformity, okay? Unity, unlike uniformity, maintains difference. What I mean is that uniformity makes everything the same. Unity maintains difference amongst those things and still brings them together. Uh, best example is probably marriage, right? Because you have two individuals. God says they become one flesh. There's unity there, and yet there's differentiation. In fact, when one of the spouses gets kind of subsumed into the other, when they kind of uh, roll over and everything is about the one, we would go, that's a really unhealthy marriage, Right? If that's you, my counseling evening is on Thursdays. Feel free to come by, all right? No, but that, that's what we would say. Like, if, if, if there is a, a marriage that kind of cancels out the uniqueness of the two individuals, what you have is unhealth. Unity is meant to be something that maintains the uniqueness of the individual and yet brings them together. With me? Okay. But it's not simply this good and pleasant state. It's also an ongoing state. Let's continue in verse one, where he says how good and pleasant is when brothers dwell in unity. That, that where it's harder to see, I mean, you can see it in the English, but we skip over things. You know this, right? Like you didn't really know grammar until you took a foreign language, right? Like all of us, none of us learned English grammar. Like we sat in ninth grade English class, but none of us really learned it. We didn't learn it until we started taking Spanish or German or whatever you took. Um, and, or, you know, for me, it, was, it, it had more to do with learning Greek. But anyway, like that word dwell is a, is a um, constant. It's, a, it's, it's not a one-time thing. It's not how good and pleasant it is when brothers once dwelt in unity, but dwell, an ongoing thing. It's not a passing phase. And uh, later in the, in the Bible, in Ephesians chapter four, that's, that's in the New Testament, um, the, the writer Paul who wrote like most of the New Testament. He, he says in Ephesians 4, 3, that, that these people who live in Ephesus, who are Christians in Ephesus, are to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, which is to say it's something that is meant to continue, but there can be a bit of a fragility to it. That there's something that is there, but it needs to be maintained. And this is where that context that I was talking about uh, is important. The goodness and the delight, the enjoyableness of unity is something that needs to be maintained. And that is because, as we see in, in, the, in the structure of this, this is part of God's provision along the way. Part of God's provision along the way is unity. While on pilgrimage, while for us, while on this life with God, on our way to the world that he has um, said is coming. Unity is part of our provision. So that's what it is. It's good. It's enjoyable. It's about unity, not uniformity. It maintains distinctions even within that union. It's something that is meant to continue and it's provision. So now, like, why, why, why should we want it? Look down at verse two. This is the weird part, right? I mean, let's be honest. This is weird. No one ever thinks like, you know what would be really delightful and enjoyable for me today? I'm just going to crack open the olive oil and pour it all over my head. No one's thinking that, okay? But let's get to this, okay? So, precious oil. 
in the Old Testament, the world of the Old Testament, oil was used for a million different things. Obviously, you'd use it for cooking. We get that. We all do that. It was also used for skincare. Ladies, rub a little oil on it. Like, makes you shine. That was good back then. Okay? Shiny was good uh, back then. Not so good now, but that's, that's what you wanted. It was um, hair care product. Right? You live in a desert. Get the moisture in there. Like, all of that was part of it. And then it was also used... Um, in religious context for something called anointing. And anointing is a kind of a, it's, it's kind of a, a physical way of representing the work of God's spirit on us, right? Kind of coming upon us. And so what we're talking about here when we're talking about precious oil is probably that latter one, the anointing oil, something that is made to be incredibly expensive and precious, something that's good. And so this oil goes on the head, and then it travels down to the beard, and then it gets on the collar of his robes. And what, what that means is that there's a ton of it. it. There's an abundance of this thing. That in the Old Testament, again, the two things that you would mark out as something that was a period of, or some, a sign of joy was kind of abundant wine, okay, we get that, and abundant oil. Like those two things were signs of joy. And so this is, when there's an abundance of oil, we're talking about this is amazing, this is awesome, this is delightful, enjoyable, this is the, this is a, a, a kind of a excessive joy. It's not just a little oil. It's like flowing. It would be messy. So extravagant that it's messy. But it's not just anyone's beard. That would be, you know, weird enough. But now we have Aaron, okay? For those of you who don't know who Aaron is, Aaron uh, was the first of God's uh, priests. And the priests in the Old Testament were... Um, were these agents of reconciliation. They stood in between two unreconciled parties and helped to mediate to bring them together. And so religiously, that was between God and man, but it also was between people who couldn't get along, right? And so for, for this psalm, okay, which, by the way, begins with, of David, Aaron has been dead a long time. Like, a long time. A really long time, okay? Like 500 years long. And so if, if he's been dead a really long time, then this is a figurehead. That whatever this joyous celebration is that they're, they're talking about with the oil running down, it is centered on the religious life of Israel. The image here is that unity among a community is like a celebration centered on this one high priest, which is a big deal because that is the one through whom atonement came. What's something that always is going to make you celebrate when you went from being guilty to not guilty. When you went from being um, in a place of judgment to a place of peace. And this, this unity is like that kind of celebration. Okay? Now, verse 3, the do part. If I'm being honest with you, do is really annoying, especially in the summer. I'm a lawn guy. I really like to mow my grass in the morning. And unless you have the big machines that Chapman and his company uses, that just makes a mess everywhere. So I don't like it. However, if you live in a desert, 
The morning dew is the only thing keeping your crops alive. It's the only thing that is actually keeping you sustained. And Herman, for whatever reason, seems to have been known to have had excessively heavy dew. Now, the, dif- the, the distance between the dew of Herman and Jerusalem, it's not like they were right next to each other. And so, like, the rain would just kind of blow it over. Like, they were very distant. So, basically, what, what this is saying is that um, to speak of the dew of Herman, was, it, it's a lot like talking about uh, a New York Minute. I don't know if you know this, a New York minute is no faster than a Stanton minute, right? However, when we want to talk about something being really fast, we talk about a New York minute. If you want to talk about really heavy dew falling somewhere, you talk about the Herman dew, right? It's the, well, dew of, uh, anyway. Um, So again, it falls on Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. That's the center of the Old Testament universe. I'd love to talk more about that, but we don't have time. So unity, again, is something that, that brings and sustains life. It is like the dew of Hermon. And you know this, right? Because the opposite of unity is isolation. It's loneliness. None of us here really experience that though, do we? Isolation, loneliness. That feeling when you walk into a room and you know everyone, but you still feel alone. That feeling you get when you pop on your social media feed and see how involved everyone else is. But not you. You don't have that. Never mind. None of us have felt that fear that those around us don't have our best at heart. That we're just this side of being rejected. That we just don't fit. Don't want others to figure that out. Right? Eh. See, unity is meant to be a sustaining grace to us. It's meant to be something that's not only enjoyable, but gives life, keeps us living, keeps us moving. So why would we want it? Well, why wouldn't you? If that's what it does, why wouldn't you want it? So we got what it is, we got why we want it now, how to get it. Or even to maintain it, for that matter. So let's talk about it specifically in the church, right? How do we get unity amongst uh, even Christians. Let's just narrow it down to Christians. Well, there are a few options out there, okay? Um, if you come from the Roman Catholic tradition, uh, you find unity in being a part of what, what they call the magisterium, being under the Pope, okay? If you come from the Orthodox tradition, you find unity in Orthodox. By that, I mean like Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, all these different Orthodox kind of groups. They find unity in their little subgroups in how they do worship, Right? Follow a particular liturgy, that is your unity. Well, we're, we're amongst the Protestant evangelical tradition, right? And so Protestants generally do unity in theology. But that means that as a tradition, we always have one foot out the door. I mean, we're pretty good at divisiveness, right? How many church splits have you been a part of or seen? I mean, splits, not plants. That's different. Unless it's a splant, and then it's, we don't like you anymore, so we're going to go over here and start a church, and, oh, look, Jesus is on the move. We're playing churches. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. But, I mean, think about it. Even in our tradition, okay, Presbyterian Church in America, did you know that there's another church in this town called Stanton OPC, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, holds the same theological standards we do, believes the same things about the Bible we do, 
The only difference between the PCA and the OPC is that the OPC has a different way of doing their national meeting. And we couldn't get together on that one. It's just a bridge too far. We really love the way we do our national meetings. Heretics. You know, like that's, you know, like uh, we're not good at this. You see, I would argue the place that we see the best example of unity in our culture is not Sunday morning. It's Sunday afternoon or Saturday afternoon, depending on your particular likes in the fall. Where a diverse bunch of people who vote differently, believe differently, have different economic statuses, perhaps they even live in very different regions of the country, they all put on the same colors and they saunter into a stadium and they go from being distinct to fans. How does that happen? Well, can I tell you that unity is found, unity comes when something greater, when we accept something greater than what we believe divides us. When we, when we come and we believe that something is more than what it is that divides us. And that is exactly what this text points to. You see, in verse 2, the, the implicit context is that this joy of unity comes amongst the, the covenant community, those, the people of God, that there is something, this figurehead of Aaron, who, who obviously, he was long dead. They didn't know who Aaron was, but his, his role as the high priest is the one who, who takes them from, from being in the wrong to being in the right, from being guilty to being justified, from being, from being um, within God's wrath to being within his his, his love and acceptance that, that, that there is a unity that's bigger than the fact that, well, Ruth was a Moabite. David was an Israelite. And that person over there, well, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. We don't like them much. And those Ephraimites, they're from over the river. You know the people like over the river. Like they're, but they all come together. And why? Because there's something bigger. It all revolves around the one through whom we have atonement. And this, Christian, is what we are to find in Jesus. You see, all these other things can be good. Your theology can be good. Your way of wanting to do worship, that can be good. Your understandings of things like baptism and communion, good. They can't be God. Here's what I mean. How exact does your theology need to line up before you can find unity with someone? How exact? Is it like, well, I mean, I mean, we are in a Presbyterian church. I mean, you got to kind of believe in certain things. And if you don't, well, if you don't, then what? Uh, that, that's too abstract, right? I mean, we don't, some of us in the room are big on our theology, others of us not so much. So let me get to one that's probably a little more closer to home. What level of political agreement allows you to be unified with someone else? Is it just the party? Or is it even a wing of the party? How close does your worship style in your ch- in, in church or your view of economics have to be before you can actually trust someone. How much difference needs to happen beca- before someone becomes one of those people? 
And you know who those people are. How much difference? See, the glory of the gospel is that there is a greater center to our unity, and it is found in a person instead of a practice. It is found in an individual instead of an ideal. When we place our faith in Jesus, we are united to him. What is true of him becomes true of us. His death for sin, ours. His perfect life, ours. We are united to him. That's awesome. But you know who else is? Everyone else who who has placed their faith in him, which means it's not just me and Jesus. It's me and Jesus and Dan. Me and Jesus and, and, and Barbara. And we're all unified in him. Do I make that unity? No, he did. I can destroy it, but I certainly didn't make it. We are united to every other person who has their faith in Jesus. And so every person in this room who has been rescued by Jesus is united to, want, is united to every other person. And there is nothing that can completely sunder that. I don't care who you voted for. I don't care what you believe about what we do. I don't care if you think I'm just an idiot. I, no, I do. But that's not the point. The point is, is that we are all united. We are together. And whether we realize it or not, that is truth because of the gospel. So why then, if that is true, does Paul in Ephesians 4 tell us to be eager to maintain this unity of the spirit? I mean, because if that's the case, if it all happens and Jesus did it, then, then we're good, right? Why be eager? Can I tell you, it is because you and I are so awesome at taking good things and making them God things. You and I are so good at at putting asunder what God has joined together. We are awesome at it. It's our spiritual gift. Disunity. We're awesome. Theology is good. Worship is good. Politics can be good. Knowing how you believe the Bible speaks to doing ministry is good, but these things can't be God's. Because you you see, the reality is, there is more that unites the people in this room than unites you with probably anyone else. More than likely. Right? If you're a Christian here this morning, you've placed your faith in Jesus. You're coming to a church that preaches the Bible We believe it's true. Here's what I think I know about you, even if I don't know you. You believe, like I said, if if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, just, just listen in for a minute. But you believe that your being right before God comes only through faith alone, in Christ alone, by his grace alone. You believe that, more than likely, you believe that the Bible is, is God's word. It is authoritative for your life. More than likely, you believe what the Apostles' Creed says, that uh, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried, and he rose again from the dead. Some of us even believe in something called the doctrines of grace, which I won't get into. Uh, Eventually we will. Covenant theology. Some of us are joined together in the fact that we baptize our babies, complementarian, where we, we hold to a Presbyterian form of government. We're Presbyterians. Like, well, all of us are kind of in that. 
And that's not even to mention the Trinity and the fact that the Spirit of God is processes from the Father and the Son. So why is it that we can all hold all of those things and yet find it so hard to maintain the Spirit and the bond of peace? Why is that? Because, man, you, you know what? I, there's not a person in this room who doesn't get a little nervous when we're at a gathering and the issue of politics comes up. And we're a little nervous, not because we're, you know, like, oh, politics and religion, you're not supposed to talk about that. I mean, you're in church, so you talk about religion. But it's probably because you're not sure what that person's going to say and what are they going to think of you if you say what you think. Like, we're already automatically believing that something is going to come in, in between us. And so why is it so hard? Let me, let me suggest a couple things. The first is fear. And I say that's first because it's the one that gets me the most. Because you see, I tend, and I'm sure you don't, so just listen in on me. I tend to get afraid that those who are different from me in what they think, what they emphasize, what they practice, that they're not going to appreciate what I bring to the table. They're either going to force me to conform or get rid of me. Right? So we can fear marginalization. We can fear powerlessness. We can fear lack of control. We can feel, fear people thinking we're stupid. We, you, know, you name it. And what these things do is they tend to push us towards a posture of suspicion. Why do you want to know that about me? You're probably just dumb anyway. Like it, it, it helps us to, to feel powerful. So the first is fear, but the second is pride. Listen, there was no one in this room who doesn't think that what they believe, what they emphasize, what they practice isn't right. You wouldn't do it if you didn't think it was right. Right? Like, like, you know, I mean, hey, my politics are way bad, but oh well. Like, I, you know, I'm still going to vote for the person I'm going to vote for. I mean, it's not the right thing to do, but I'm in it. Like, none of us think that, right? None of us think, you know what? I just... I don't think my church does it right, but where else am I going to go? Like, that's not what we're thinking. We think, okay, this is, this is right. You wouldn't be doing what you're doing if you didn't think you were right. But how quickly can being right turn into being righteous? How quickly can being right turn into not just like I have, I have this opinion to I am righteous because I have this opinion. From being like, I, I, I think this is true, to being I am on the right side of history. How quickly can we move from playful following of Jesus to demanding that everyone conform to us? So how do we move past that? Hopefully not surprisingly, for those of you who've been here for a while, I'll tell you, like, it's the gospel. The gospel frees us from our fear because it radically affirms that our acceptance from the God of the universe rests on Jesus and on him alone and not our right opinions, not our right practice, not our right parenting, not our right responsible job doing. It rests on Jesus and on him alone. returns Jesus to the place of ultimate so everything else can be good but they're just not they're just not as important 
But the gospel also frees us from our pride because it tells us, friends, listen to me, even on your best day, you do realize your opinions are influenced by your sin, right? Mine too. Look, I'm not, like, I'm up here too. Like, yep. You do realize that even on your best day, your practices, again, whether that's I do my work the right way, I do my parenting the right way, I do my marriage the right way, that all of these things are influenced, tainted, just a little bit, by your sin. That you don't have the corner of the market on truth. And by that, what I don't mean is that there's no such thing as truth. Mm. What I mean is, is that you didn't somehow like your opinions, your rightness, your tradition, your way of doing things. I got it. And no one else has anything to ever say to me. It frees us then because it tells us, man, sin has touched every part of us. And so it frees us from our pride to be curious instead of arrogant. Because someone believing something or doing something different says nothing about us. It allows us to seek to understand instead of seeking to critique or to discredit because it threatens us. It allows us to disagree without questioning character. But what it also does is it allows us to maintain our fences. And by fences, I mean like we all have things that we believe fervently. That is fine. That is good. What I'm not saying and what the Bible is not saying is therefore hold all things like willy-nilly. Like it's all fluffy. Like that. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. Hold things firmly. Believe them. Have conviction. But is that conviction, like as those fences start to come in from Jesus, the reality is, is that we need to be able to allow other people within them. That, 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 What unites us in Jesus has to allow for folks to be in that bigger fence even as we close others in with what we agree with. It allows us to maintain those fences, those standards, while also maintaining the call that Paul gives in another one of his letters, 1 Corinthians in chapter 13, that's always read at weddings, but it's not about marriage. Okay, it's about, it's not about marriage. It's not, did you know that? 1 Corinthians 13, not about marriage. You know what it's about? This. It's about this. And I had it read at mine too. It's all right. But it's about this. Where Paul says that love always bears with, it always trusts, it always hopes. Because it tells us The gospel tells us, friends, that we are even intellectually unfinished products with blind spots. And even in that, Jesus deals with us gently. And so, so can we. In a moment, we're going to be coming to this table together because of the finished work of Jesus. Not because we got some answers right on a test. Not because we got some things that we do better than other people. We're coming because of the finished and final work of Jesus. So as we do that, let's also approach our life together as brothers and sisters in the same way, together, because of the finished work of Jesus. Would you pray with me? 
Lord, it is the finished work of Christ that we look to and ask that, Lord, even, even in this place where in many ways, I didn't even mention half the stuff that probably the folks in this room have in common. Lord, I, I just pray that you would give us unity. And even when we don't, or, or when we find that we are pretty united with those around us, those sitting next to us, Lord, then let us also reach out and, and find that in those that aren't here, but who share their faith in you. That, uh, Lord, as you said, the world may know that the Father sent you, that we might be one. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.